uh, welcome everyone. This is uh, July 6th, year 2006, and uh, we have an autolog uh, scheduled discussion session again today. Uh, today's topic is ontologizing the ontolog body of knowledge, and this is discussion session number two. We had one that was moderated by Dr. Denise Bedford uh, back in April, and this is the second one uh, where we have our moderator and organizer, Dr. E. Michael Maximilian from IBM, who is going to explore with us uh, the tools, techniques, and approaches uh, he has put together in illustrious panel for us. So, uh, without further ado, uh, Max, or yours. Okay, thank you, Peter. Um, I hope everybody can hear me. Um, I think we have uh, Connor, who also just joined. So we have almost everybody. I uh, ping uh, Peter Mika, so I guess once he, once he comes in, we'll, we'll also know that. So in my set of slides, I, um, I try to motivate this panel and then... Um, I try to motivate this panel, and also I'll stop at the point where I start to introduce the, the speakers, uh, the panelists, which who each one of them will have about uh, to cover their uh, prepared kind of slides or statements, and then we'll go into discussions. There is one slide at the end that kind of covers um, a series of initial questions, but clearly we can let uh, the entire um, community and participants ask questions. Uh, our tradition is if we have less than 20 people, we get a chance to sort of go uh, do a quick go around and have people uh, at least uh, tell, tell us who they are, where they come from, uh, and so on. Let's go down the attendee list, and uh, we'll skip the panelists, uh, and and we'll do everyone else. Uh, our moderator will in, uh, introduce the panelists later. Uh, Bob, you want to start? Uh, I'm Bob Smith. I'm interested in ontology, particularly ontology management and ontologizing processes. Look forward to uh, learning more. Thank you. I'm Peter Yim, uh, one of the co-conveners of the Ontolog Forum along with uh, Leo Oberst and Kurt Conrad, uh, who can join us today. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy that we can have this session, which uh, Max has put a lot of effort into. And thank you, Max, for doing that. Sure. Uh, Pat. Hi, I'm Pat Heinig. I'm currently with Project Performance Corporation. Uh, my affiliation with Analog has been while uh, I was a federal chief architect, uh, enterprise architect, and through the many projects I've done in the federal sector, now I'm consulting in this small company and uh, trying to improve their enterprise architectural practice and also start semantic technology business efforts. So I'm also part of the Analog's uh, task team that's working out some of the, how to move forward with this task. Thank you, Pat. Uh, Michael? Oh, okay. Um, okay, so uh, I guess uh, we'll get started. Oh, no, no, no. We, 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 
is going through uh, self-introduction. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to skip, skip me. Okay. Oh, um. yeah. I'll skip you. It's <laughs> uh, later. Uh, Carolyn, then? Yes, I'm Carolyn Offit uh, with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. I'm actually a colleague of Brian Neiman. Some of you know Brian. Um, I'm particularly interested in geospatial ontology, and I'm deeply disappointed that I was on vacation when the geospatial ontology meeting or session was in uh, Washington two weeks ago. But uh, uh, that's my area, geospatial. Yeah, that was a great session, actually. <laughs> Don't tell me. Okay. <laughs> okay. Nicola? Uh, yeah, my name is Nikola Gokhajik. I'm a consultant with uh, experience in engineering and management for people like Boeing, Great Health Systems. Currently interested in network centric enterprise, enterprise engineering, and I have been a quiet listener to the great works you guys are doing for a while. Thank you. Rento? Hello, this is uh, Peter Mika speaking from Sudan. Okay, great. Uh, we're going through some introductions, Peter. Peter. So, Rento? Okay. My name is Randall Houck, um, Chief Architect at Revolitics, uh, which is a relatively new um, software company focusing on um, building semantic technology tools uh, and ontology management tools. Uh, thank you. Uh, Roy? Hello, I'm Roy Robuck. Uh, I work for a small company called Tom IT, and uh, we do enterprise management services focusing primarily on what would be called a, a practical ontology, uh, focusing on endeavor management uh, at any scale. And uh, we're applying, we have applied it to the federal executive branch in a previous product project, and uh, we're also now applying it to uh, several DOD projects. Fantastic. Uh, Oh, good. We're skipping Connor and Peter. So, uh, anybody else who has not introduced themselves and who is not part of the panel today? Who just joined us? Maybe Doug McDavid, Patrick DeRusso, Jeff Park, James Werner, Bill McCarthy, Stephen Elf. Anybody here? Not. Uh, back to you, Max. Okay. Um so I think uh, I, I heard Peter uh, Mika join, which is excellent, because we now have all the speakers. Uh, the order in which I have the, the uh, speakers will be slightly different because uh, I have one, a couple of people that want to leave, uh, that have to leave a few minutes earlier. Uh, so we'll change that, and I'll, I'll explain that as we get to it. So um, I, I think, as, as Peter, uh, you mentioned, this is uh, the second set of panels. Uh, on, uh, you know, pretty much what we've been calling ontologizing the ontolog content. And this one is going to focus on tools, techniques, and approaches. And, and I'm very uh, honored uh, that the panelists join us and you'll see as I introduce them that we really have a good cross-section uh, of research and industry here. Um, Tell us what slide you're on uh, yes. every time uh, you change one. Okay, so I'm on slide uh, um, two and I'm leaving this slide because I pretty much give you an overview of what I'm going to talk about, and we'll have some initial questions, but clearly the, the audience uh, will jump in and, and uh, you know, create uh, questions on the fly, or even the panelists themselves if they have questions. So I think one way to, um, to kind of 
think of what we're trying to do here is, is to take a retrospective and look at what's happening in the web today. So today's web or web 2.0, if you, if you want to use that, that kind of term, is that people, uh, the users, all contributed the content uh, versus before where content were coming from the website, whoever created that website, like a company or uh, an institution. Like that, that, um, I'm on slide three. Uh, and that, that results uh, uh, into blogs and audio and video podcasts. I mean, it's all the craze right now. But it also results in very highly unstructured content and also highly idiosyncratic. Uh, everybody put the content that they care about, um, really, at the end. Uh, the other kind of highlight of what's happening on the web today, and this is nothing new, but I'm just wanting to kind of motivate where we are, is that there is a huge amount of collabor collaboration, uh, especially in the form of wikis. And then also this idiosyncratic uh, uh, content is also being annotated, which results in taxonomy. Uh, uh, and you know, Peter Mika, for instance, has, is doing his PhD, and part of it is on that. Uh, that's why he's here. Uh, part of, uh, um, you know, hopefully what he will talk about. And that that leads into a lot of what, you know, um, I think uh, John Fury, he calls the wisdom of the crowd, where a group of people with the same, um, you know, interest are aggregating together and creating pretty much what becomes an authority on a particular subject. So you, you get pretty much instant feedback on a series of, of, of uh, uh, items. So, for instance, the news website, uh, dig.com, is uh, an excellent way to see this in action, where uh, the news that are shown on dig.com actually don't come from any editor. It actually comes from the participant. So every participant proposes a news item and you can vote whether or not we dig that item or we don't dig it. And whichever item gets the most amount of votes then pretty much bubbles up. Uh, and dig.com 3.0 actually shows also categorization of content and so on, which is very similar to what we're trying to do here. Now, of course, you know, issues with this is that you get collusion or, you know, what, what Harold uh, Reinhold called uh, the smart mob effect. Uh, and, and, you know, dig.com, for instance, get this in the sense of, you know, people colluding to, uh, you know, put spam on the, on the, on the website. So I think, you know, at the same time you have wisdom of the crowd, there's also issues with that. So that's why I wanted to kind of highlight this. And the final thing that's happening on the web right now is uh, really data aggregation in the form of RSS feeds and also really the realization of web services with the rest and even social services. So every company uh, that participated in Web 2.0, if you're really a Web 2.0 company, you pretty much put an API of your application. And that, that enables matchup of the, of the end result uh, so you, of, of your application. So there are tons of examples of this, but uh, since somebody was mentioning the geospatial community, uh, there is a huge amount of geospatial uh, um, services or at least three or four main ones like Google Maps and, and, and Yahoo Maps. And various people are mashing these to create content, to create new services with other services. So uh, an example of this is, is um, using uh, the, um, the salesforce.com uh, CRM database with Google Maps to show leads of your, um, you know, marketing leads on a map. 
And, and the reason I want to highlight this kind of what's happening on the web today is the fact that, um, you know, what we're trying to do with the ontological content, I think it should be in line with what's happening on the web because we can leverage a lot of those tools and services. So going to the next slide, uh, slide number four, um, what, who are we in some ways, the ontological community of practice? Where we are experts in formal and semi-formal knowledge representation, mainly ontologies. Uh, um, very highly educated researchers, uh, both academia and industry. Uh, and the content contribution from this group, and also from external participants, is in the form of the wiki pages that you probably all have looked at, and also in the form of presentations, different formats, and also the the content of, of those talks, like today's talk, which is being recorded in the form of an MP3, MP3 file. And then, of course, you have, um, you know, biographies and different links between the participants. So, in other words, kind of a social network between the participants. So, now, the, the question that we've been asking ourselves is, you know, in the U.S., we call this dog fooding, uh, but it's can we use the knowledge that we have and the expertise that we have to give structure to the ontological content? Uh, how do, would we go about doing that? And what are tools, techniques, and so on, which is the talk today, the focus of the panel today. So going to the next slide, number five, um, I wanted to kind of recap what we've done so far. So we've discussed use cases. Uh, there are various other colleagues, colleagues that have participated in, in these uh, we've discussed architectural courses, and we even have an initial taxonomy where Dennis Bedford and Bob Smith uh, put this together and we discussed it as a group. Um, so we're, we're kind of at a point where, you know, if we were to actually implement some of the ideas that we've discussed, uh, we need to understand what are some tools and approaches so that we can make it a little bit concrete. And I think also we're not very clear on what we're trying to achieve. So um, one thing that we could try to come up with today is, is maybe a clear step forward. Uh, the thing that seems to be common across all the discussion is that some kind of better categorization of the content is important. Uh, participation of users, so similar to Web 2.0, is also something that's important. And then taking advantage of the, ex the efforts that we have. I think that's, that's also very important. Um, there is this huge amount of gray space between the more formal ontologies, uh, you know, semi-formal, with the more loose ones like taxonomy. And, un you know, a lot of, uh, it's not very clear how to reconcile those two things, uh, although there are some ideas, uh, um, like uh, uh, some of uh, recent papers, like Peter's, uh, Amika's uh, paper on that. So I think that's another idea on, on you know, directions to go forward. Uh, going to slide uh, six, uh, for today's talk, I think, like I mentioned, you know, I'm honored that all the speakers uh, are joining us, but you'll see also that not only they are great, you know, uh, um, you know, people with huge amount of background and in and, and, and the space and, and a lot to contribute, but also very different uh, backgrounds. So, for instance, you'll have expert in unstructured text mining and automated taxonomy <coughs> and categorization. Uh, you know, we have expert in taxonomy and, and really original research and ontologies and social networks uh, with also semantic tools. Uh, we have also experts uh, in, in, you know, essentially a company that's, you know, doing work and creating semantic wikis and tools. And then we also have an expert in faceted-based logic and search. 
so the the the, the, the panelists really have a good background and, and very broad. Uh, and of course, the audience are, are experts in mythology. This is following a talk by Tim Redman, uh, who discussed the Protege tool. Uh, and as you all know, the Protege tool is a way to build ontologies uh, using R. And in a future talk, just to give a plug to Pat Cassidy's talk, he will discuss even more formalized uh, approach to ontological engineering. So now I will get started by, I will start by introducing the speakers. Um, we'll go in that order unless there are some, um, you know, constraints. Um, we're going to go with, uh, with um, Boz first because he has the first constraint to leave um, towards the end of the talk. He'll be there for the Q&A, but he may have to step out. Um, then we'll go for, um, you know, uh, Connor, who has another constraint then Scott, and then Peter Mika. Uh, please let me know if this is, if, if, if you want to change the order a little bit uh, very quickly, otherwise we'll go with that. Okay, so now I'm going to jump ahead to uh, Boz's um, um, biography and, uh, and introduce him. So Boz is a new member of uh, my, our group. Uh, Scott is also in our group. Uh, where um, he came to us from uh, um, IBM Global Services. He is an IT architect, a senior IT architect, excuse me. Uh, he uh, is a, va a visiting faculty at University of Texas at Austin, where he got his PhD. Boz uh, has the distinguished uh, 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 you know, honor of being one of IBM's master inventor. And, and what does that mean? Well. It means that he has, well, we were talking on the way here, and he pretty much has had a patent filed uh, over the past five years uh, every month. That's pretty amazing, because a lot of his patents are, uh, are also some of what IBM considers uh, our top contributing patents. Uh, so um, with that, uh, and, and also hoping to learn how to you know, create more patterns and, and learning from what you have to say right now. Buzz is next to me. I introduce you, Buzz, um, John Handy, Buzz, uh, Buzz Mahova. Thanks a lot. Um, I'm glad to be here. My first, this is actually my first call on the Ontology Forum. I'm really glad to be here and to hear um, all the uh, incredible people on the call, some of whom I knew of but hadn't actually been on calls with. Um, my background um, is um, basically in the communication sciences. Uh, I'm, I'm not actually a computer scientist. Um, and in, in particular, looking at um, how people, um, it, it's, it's con content analysis, or basically computational analysis of communication artifacts. To me, this was highly related to the purpose of the panel on looking at ontolog content and how you might actually uh, uh, work with uh, content on a wiki, any socially tagged content, and uh, allow people to get to provide access to or contribute to to, the, to those contents. So uh, some of the framing questions that that um, that were uh, stated by by Max seem to be really important to me. Things like whether automated taxonomy and categorization of unstructured text uh, will work with certain navigation paradigms are important issues. So I'm not sure how many of the people on the call are familiar are familiar with uh, what I would call faceted logic or faceted search. My basic contention to you is going to be that um, the current dominant uh, search paradigms, uh, full text search or parametric search, are are increasingly going to uh, to come under pressure, uh, and that uh, new approaches such as faceted logic 
which uh, allow for uh, return and filtering or access of structured and unstructured data uh, by characteristics about those data, the metadata basically, are going to be increasingly uh, prevalent in various user interfaces, particularly for socially tagged content. Um, I'm, and I'm not, I'm not that's where someone can eliminate that buzzing. Thanks. Um, can you tell us what slide you're on? I'm on, I'm on chart two. Okay. So, um, telling us. so, chart two, yeah. So the, the, so the basic point is that full-text search is, for many reasons, an, an inadequate paradigm for navigating wikis and other socially tagged content. If you actually look at end-user behavior on a full-text search engine for either an, uh, a company's search, uh, wikis or for wikis on the, we on, on the web or for other socially tagged content, uh, a, a, um, uh, uh, you'll, you'll see that people have difficulty of, of actually finding information that they're looking for, and they're not sure whether they really found everything. Um, task completion rates tend to be pretty low, and so on. So there are a number of reasons, um, a number of issues with just using a full-text search on a wiki, such as you might find on an ontologic forum. The, the first issue is you might get too many results, assuming the content grows to a certain level. So suppose you have 50,000 pieces, pieces of information in, in your wiki. Um, Certain full text terms, especially common terms, you might get 10,000 results or 5,000 results or even 200 results. It's unlikely that end users are going to want to go through that amount of information, or that they will. And that information is typically arranged in a single relevance algorithm, um, or what amounts to a single relevance algorithm. And so um, the order is not likely to be uh, in, in, uh, relevant to their particular purpose for searching for that information. It's also returning just the single document results. And there are many other reasons uh, listed on that chart that, that, that basically add up to the task completion for finding information that the end user is actually after is much lower. Is in comparison with a faceted search, and you can find many examples of faceted search on the web if you're interested, um, that where the task completion rate tends to be uh, much higher, over 90% over in the end user studies we've done in IBM. Uh, additionally, the full text search uh, there are a lot of tricks you can use as an expert for using, uh, if you're expert in a domain or expert with a particular search engine to find what you're looking for. Uh, with a faceted logic, you tend to be able to use, uh, just, just as a, a novices, and that the delta between the, the search success between experts and novices is much lower. Um, and um, so those are some reasons why full text search doesn't really uh, cut uh. socially tagged content, because you're really not using the metadata. Um, I'm on chart three. The basic point I'm trying to make here is if you think about uh, ontologies as a, as a way to structure concepts, perhaps in trees, perhaps in lists, perhaps in other forms, then you can think of faceted logic, the kind of thing in, in, where you're mixing and matching metadata and returning uh, mainly results that are available. Uh, <laughs> And it's one that can achieve enormous power beyond what we see in the marketplace today um, um, if, if we think about it in those terms um, because it allows us to do things beyond simple tree traversal of, of ontologies or search of the labels in an ontology, for example. And so it has a lot of value. And I'm now moving on to chart three. Obviously, I can't go into all of the detail here, but I did want to uh, – sorry, chart four. I did want to provide some. The basic idea of a faceted logic is that is that um, is that there are dimensional structures uh, could be high, you know hierarchies or flat lists that are about a particular topic. 
uh, much like you see in many ontologies today. And uh, those are arranged uh, typically in tree structures, but not necessarily. And those are abstractions until they're applied to particular instances. Those instances might be documents, they might be paragraphs, they, they might be morphemes, um, or they might be whole collections of content, like uh, websites, for example. Um, highly complex websites, websites that are, you, could, you could make up, actually make up metadata and apply it at the level of a collection, for example. And on the right side of that chart, essentially what I'm trying to say is that the, the faceted logic, the principle of accessing, accessing ontologies uh, by what actually has content or metadata available provides a nice way of, nice way of organizing information. And, can, and, and is being integrated in with many functions we're familiar with today that don't work as well, uh, like taxonomy management, collaboration, workflow, and the like. And the facet logic is being, is being embedded in those. And, and wikis are an appropriate form as well to do that. And then some, some considerations are the next chart, chart five, um, just because the time is brief. Uh, basically, uh, some points I wanted to make are, are that, um, are that, um, by trying to feature faceted logic in a wiki style, I think we'll we would probably learn a lot, especially about about um, how you configure uh, configure ontologies to be available to particular audiences around the idea of local language and hierarchy and managing issues such as policy uh, that are familiar to many of us. So, you know, it's really a question of what ontologies are relevant to ontologies or sections of ontologies are relevant to particular audiences and how might they be applied in a social context. And I think that the fastest logic is the in, in end user applications. You'll find that it has enormous potential uh, for end users and for experts to be able to work with ontologies, administer them, and use them to act both on data and metadata. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate that. Um, do you want to take some questions now for Boz, uh, Peter, or do we wait, wait for the questions after? Uh, all up to you. Okay, so I think let's, uh, unless there is one burning question uh, or two, uh, we will move to the next speaker. Uh, this is Roy Robach. I have a question. I applied a, essentially a faceted uh, ontological approach to uh, this federal project I mentioned a while back. And um, one of the things I've done over the years, and I've been taking this approach for about 25 years, is using, uh, eliminating what you would call, I guess, the first level or uh, root facets uh, to seven categories or seven facets. Uh, and I do that for pretty much the same reason that uh, people limit the number of dimensions in a data warehouse. If you have too many root dimensions or as such, it tends to lead to an explosion of of, uh, of uh, links and content and such. Uh, do you have any feedback on uh, a reasonable number of uh, facet, root facets that you're seeing in the classifications uh, that you're working with? Uh, sure. I think that the, the, the research findings on this are that uh, for general end user populations where you have a diverse set of interests, uh, five to seven seems to be the number that people can reasonably agree on. However, however, there are some business reasons why you might have a particular section of an ontology, or at, at the root, or, or at the root, or any particular level, that might be in the hundreds. Uh, and I've seen the cases where this, where this uh, takes place. So, some additional function that that has been tried and seems to work well are to actually be able to search on the labels 
uh, and subset, or you know things like more links uh, also work well. Some just some very familiar techniques for doing that. Or actually, you know, if you if you end up having say say uh, a certain number like 50 uh, or something that seem to be relevant at a, at the top level of a hierarchy, um, it may make sense to uh, do some uh, additional subsetting, uh, alphabetizing. Uh, or some other category, uh, some other category, subcategorization of the peers, so that right. so, so so that you get to a reasonable number. Um, yeah, that that's the approach we took. We we basically take the approach that once we have these seven root uh, hierarchies defined, and uh, decompose them downward into different uh, subfacets and such, that people, individual users or communities can hoist uh, certain. Uh, Lower level facets up to a root and basically create a customized view of the uh, the overall content from their perspective. Okay, and, and I think Matt, Max has my contact info if you'd like to have a more extended conversation about this. Yeah, I think I would. Thanks. Okay, and we'll have some time at the end for questions. So let's now move to the second panelist. Uh, this is in my set of slides. Uh, um, I'm going to read it to his bio. Um, you know, the slide number nine. This is Connor Chang. Chenki from Visual Knowledge in Vancouver, Canada. He's the CEO of that company, and that company uh, focuses on essentially creating enterprise class, so enterprise level ontology, lifecycle management, and really a platform. Uh, and it allows really metadata uh, support all types, like our and ODS, uh, federation of ontologies. Uh, you know, support for transaction multi-threading, uh, a pluggable kind of a, uh, architecture mm -hmm. so that you can have different kind of uh, inference engine. And really a long history of successful application of ontological engineering approaches. Uh, um, so with that, I introduce you to uh, Connor Schenke. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Max. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a, a slightly different perspective on things and uh, focus in on the idea of... Um, uh, potentially using the semantic wiki type of idea for helping to um, uh, work uh, help with the ontologizing of the ontolog forum. So um, on the first slide here, uh, just to give it a general overview. Um, of course, the key points are that the uh, that the uh, uh, yeah I'm sorry I'm I'm actually like, um, working off a, a paper copy here. The uh, so uh, over overview. Um, so as we uh, know, the uh, the ontolog forum, the, the core platform uh, for the ontolog forum is the uh, Sim3 wiki, and it's used to organize all of the um, the meetings, the discussions, um, to organize the various types of documents and audio files and and uh, everything else that's related to the ontolog forum, except for um, probably the, the messaging forum, unless I'm missing a few things. And, uh, of course, the ontolog forum in itself is uh, a community of interest or practice. Um, as Max said, it's a, it's a group of uh, fairly distinct individuals. And I'm going to give a quick overview of the uh, semantic wiki, and, and then I'm going to give just a little quick uh, proposal or point of view at the, uh, at the end here. So on to the next slide, which I think is my slide three. Uh, so the... Um, as I mentioned, the Ontolog Wiki is uh, it's it's the key thing that uh, if you've been hanging around in the Ontolog forum or the other um, Sim3 uh, <coughs> groups, um, the Wiki is used as one of the key um, 
areas for capturing um, the the knowledge that's being organized uh, by the group. And uh, like many Mickeys, it works very well as being a, as a collaborative type of, of, of process. And the um, the focal point, especially in the Ontolog forum, um, is around the regularly scheduled presentations. That's one of the key devices that uh, is used in the Ontolog forum to, to share information with people. Um, of course, the way that most wikis work is that all of the key concepts are the ones that are have been um, distinguished by the end users um, are all hyperlinked together. So they're all interconnected within this one um, environment. And um, of course, Peter does a great job of, uh, of of uh, managing and governing and organizing the uh, the forum, but uh, of course the community itself is able to um, to play a, a pretty significant role in being able to to move it along. Now, one of the things that I found personally, and I don't know if other people have found it, it's similar to the issue that uh, that Boz was talking about with uh, uh, with conventional uh, text-based searches, is also just the the, uh, you find that it's a little bit hard to find things unless it, you know exactly what it is that you're looking for. Um, uh, and, of course, you can resort to the text search, but they, that may be a little bit difficult to gain unless you, you use what you, you know you're looking for. So um, just going on to the uh, next slide here, just going to give you a, a, a quick background around the, the whole idea of the, uh, the wiki. It's a... Uh, Although they've really come into the front in the past a couple of years, it's not a particularly uh, new idea. It's really actually been around as long as, uh, as uh, hypermedia. But in particular, um, of course, they, the first wikis came into being um, out of uh, Oregon Tektronics about 10 years ago. And the whole idea was to provide um, a website where anybody could either create or, or edit an existing web page. And essentially they were um, invited in to, uh, to make a change. So the whole idea was to make it as simple as possible. And so therefore the entire structure, much like the whole Web 2.0 type of idea, is not predetermined um, by a central publisher who has a, a um, essentially a read-only website in this particular case, the entire environment has evolved and moved along by the community. And this creates um, an opportunity to have um, a very, very scalable level of, of, of collaboration and development. On the next slide, so some of the key ideas uh, were to make it simple. And so one of, the, uh, one of the ways to approach that was to create a very simple markup language for all the authors. And then another very uh, neat idea or cool idea was to be able to allow people uh, to be able to um, to identify a concept um, as they were entering in their content. And then as soon as they did that, either it would link into that concept if it already existed um, or allow um, discourse to, uh, to form around that new concept, um, essentially by bringing up a, a web page for um, the uh, community to type in um, hypertext content around that particular concept. So um, wikis are uh, pretty novel in that they 
they change a lot about the way that we tend to work with each other. The idea of trust and governance in particular is especially uh, modified because it provides the opportunity for really anybody who is out there uh, to uh, make a change if they, um, if they have the, the interest and assuming that that particular concept hasn't been locked down. And the assumption is that uh, because your changes are transparent and because they can be seen by everybody and because the change can be undone, that it creates a certain level of peer pressure within the community. Next slide. So just to kind of summarize those benefits of the uh, we yeah. Slide six. Uh, yes, we are. Um, so some of the really cool distinctions are that the concepts or topics, topics can be built on the fly. And instead of just being a very lightweight or flat concept, um, discourse can immediately form around that new con uh, around that particular topic. And so that essentially becomes the atom of the system. So instead of a document being the atom of your system, in a uh, typical content management system, the concepts themselves become the uh, the uh, the atom, and so this tends to eliminate a lot of the, the conventional serialized workflow that you typically get in other types of systems. Okay, on to the next uh, slide then, slide seven. So there are a couple of, of um, strengths and weaknesses, of course, uh, <laughs> with everything that. Um, if you take the, the wiki from the perspective of, of what are some of the challenges that we have um, in using a wiki in, a, in an open form, like the Ontolog, um, that's uh, actually, of course, one of the reasons why we're having this talk today in this uh, general series, which is that the concepts in a conventional wiki, um, although they are hyperlinked together in a network, essentially the network is flat. Um, because the concepts are not differentiated from each other. So if I had, say, for instance, one concept like um, Peter Yim and another concept like the Ontolog Forum or the meeting today, um, I wouldn't be able to differentiate those other than, say, for instance, um, the hypertext that's associated with them or maybe their name. And so I, um, I wouldn't necessarily be able to describe um, some common properties that might be of interest that, to say, for instance, a person or a meeting or some particular subject area. And because of that, um, it, it uh, limits one in a couple of different ways. And uh, this is somewhat related, actually, to, um, to Boz's comment with respect to uh, faceted searching. Uh, if you don't have properties or facets or whatever it is that you uh, prefer to call them, um, it makes it very difficult to do structured types of searches. Um, so some examples of that might be, um, say for instance, what if I wanted to have a calendar um, for the Ontolog Forum and I wanted to find today's event and I wanted to be able to get there within a few clicks? Well, because mm -hmm. the, the concepts aren't differentiated, it's, it's hard to find that. Or maybe, say for instance, I want to find um, either an ontology or some presentations or something like that within the ontolog forum on faceted searches. It would be hard to um, to do that in a, in a really easy kind of way. Next slide, Peter. So, semantics to the rescue. Um, 
So one of the things, of course, uh, doing uh, ontologies or doing semantics is that we can allow different concepts to have different properties. And uh, in the case of uh, a semantic wiki, what one can do is you can actually take the individual wiki concepts and essentially give them those properties. So um, this allows us to um, create unique concepts or types of concepts, and depending on uh, which, which culture you belong to, you may call them classes. Uh, and it allows you to give those um, those um, classes of, of concepts unique attributes, for example, like maybe a date, a start time, the audience's rating, maybe a modification date, and also to be able to do um, unique types of relationships, like say, for instance, who was the presenter, who were attendees, who was the creator of this thing, what resources are related to a particular subject area, and then, of course it goes on and on. So um, this, in general, also allows us to organize um, things into, um, into conceptual hierarchies or classification systems um, so that we can um, generalize or type things, which also can potentially help us in terms of organizing things and finding things. And this is, of course, what intelligent beings do. We, we aggregate things and take a bunch of complexity and, and, uh, and uh, merge it into one simpler, more general concept. On the next slide. Of course, the other thing that we can potentially do with semantics is that we can acknowledge the fact that the same word or same phrase might have um, a completely different meaning depending on the context. And that's something that is actually um, not so easy to do in a conventional wiki, especially if you're using, say, for instance, um, uh, camel casing, where there's really can only be uh, one uh, identity for any particular uh, concept unless, of course, you use a different uh, camel case. Alrighty, so on to the semantic wiki idea. So the idea with the semantic wiki is, as I mentioned, is that the um, what you can do is you can take the wiki concepts themselves, and in effect they just become elements of an ontology or of an knowledge base, and it depends on on how tightly constrained you are to what you mean by an ontology, whether you're just thinking about it as representing meta information or if you are thinking about it as also representing individuals. And so the general idea is that once you have uh, classes, that the wiki concepts themselves can have formal properties. And this enables you to do a number of different things. Um, one, it allows you to create custom views on these concepts. And then the other thing it allows you to do is to do semantic searching or faceted searching. Um, the other thing is potentially is that you can integrate uh, governance deeply into the wiki, so you can do uh, things like security and version controls and other such things like that, because you can actually differentiate the, the concepts on that level. In our particular case, um, with our semantic wiki, um, from visual knowledge, we uh, also, they allow the ability to customize various uh, views, uh, which can be driven by the underlying ontology itself. And then we build those up based on visual templates. Um, and then what we also do is we also integrate in change management, because um, in this particular case, um, there's an opportunity for the semantic wiki actually to become more of a stand-up operational system 
which, uh, um, and in that case, you need to actually do things like staging and quality control and, and have the ability to, um, to federate these things together. Okay, on the, on the last slide here. So, um, actually, it's not quite the last slide because I've got some screenshots. So, what I would suggest, this is kind of a, a slightly different angle from taking the approach of doing the folksonomy um, thing, although you could actually do it uh, with a semantic wiki as well. But a general idea from, it, instead of going completely with the, the, the semantic tagging and folksonomy type of approach, is to just take some of the most important things in the ontolog forum that, um, that, that people uh, readily want to attack and uh, just focus on structuring or on ontologizing those things. And so some of the things that come to mind for me, and they may be quite different from other people, is, is ideas like events and people. And of course, these, uh, these, these black box uh, documents such as PowerPoints and audio files and PDFs. And um, identify their, their, their basic properties and then allow people, allow the community to be able to, um, to evolve the underlying ontologies that drive these, these um, core concepts in a wiki type of uh, fashion. And of course, we're all ontologists, so we should have some skill in doing this. And uh, provide the ability to, for people to ultimately to be able to build up uh, the, um, uh, a fairly decent uh, integrated model. Uh, for all of these different parts of the ontolog form. So essentially what I'm suggesting is, is probably starting with something that's more of a skeletal model and then from here potentially you can allow the community to do, to do different things like uh, grade and rate and organize the uh, properties of, of different things like presenters and, uh, and uh, presentations and possibly ontologies and other things. Okay, Peter, next slide here. I've just got a few left. So this just kind of gives some slide chart examples. In this particular case, um, this is a, a, a screenshot of, of one of the communities of interest that we've got in, in our wiki, which is uh, for doing the uh, uh, spatial ontology working group. And in this particular case, it's just a, um, a, a wiki word, which is on, a, on an individual, on a person. And uh, because it's tied to an underlying ontology, which in this case is the uh, friend of the friend social network ontology, um, we can facet or, or detail out the properties of, of an individual, such as who they know and, and uh, you know their photograph and other types of things like that. On the next page, um, what that allows us to do is to do things like, say, for instance, do searches based on a particular type of property. So in this particular case, I could say, well, who does... Connor no, and so in this particular case it returns back Kyle, and we could ask by the name or the email or things like that. And um, so that's the kind of the wiki, and then what's on the next slide. The wiki in itself is driven by an underlying ontology management system, and this is our, our visual environment, which is a web-based environment for building and managing ontologies. And then on the last line is, uh, is just a little um, a, a form builder which we allow people to, to build views for, uh, for, for um, customizing views into the types of uh, semantic concepts that you might have in a wiki. So that's kind of it. It's just a 
so in that, in summary, um, the idea is to is to use something like a semantic wiki to just help to attack some of the easier <coughs> structured stuff that's associated with um, with the ontolog forum, and uh, to help to make it just. Uh, uh, as, a, as a starter process, and I think that ultimately it's probably a hybridization of all the things that Max has discussed, from doing the semantic tagging to doing algorithmic types of approaches to uh, uh, the foxonomy taxonomy type of thing. Um, they probably all will help in the end to create a, um, a strong approach, but this is one angle on it. And uh, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Connor. Uh, this was very good. In fact, we're we're kind of running over, so I'm gonna skip any questions for Connor towards the end. Um, so we'll introduce now the next panelist, um, uh, and this is uh, Scott Spangler. I'm going to my slide, uh, uh, slide number seven. Uh, Scott uh, is a colleague here at Almaden. Uh, he's a senior technical staff member uh, uh, in IBM Research. He has 15 years uh, developing. Uh, you know, statistical data analysis, knowledge-based systems, text mining, BI, and so on. He has some of the key patents in text mining and BI. Uh, I said that originally, but he scratched the key, but I know those are the key patents. Um, and uh, he has uh, 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 ES in mathematics from MIT and a master's from University of Texas at Austin also. So with that, I turn you over to Scott uh, Spangler. Yeah, I had to tone down Max's original bio slide a little bit over the top. So. <laughs> anyway, um, the the e-classifier tool I'm going to describe to you today actually came out uh, of this lab, started about seven or eight years ago now. Time time passes quickly. Um, really, to try to solve a simple problem: how do we analyze help desk problem tickets? We had all this text lying around in IBM. We managed help desks all over the world for lots of Fortune 500 companies. And we didn't have a good way to really make sense that everything was there. And we realized part of the answer was to create categorizations of those tickets into naturally occurring categories like password problems, printer problems, et cetera. But that turned out to be a much harder problem than we realized. And typical text mining techniques like clustering would get you part of the way there. They'd get you some good categories, but they wouldn't really complete the job. We realized there was a knowledge component to it as well. Uh, we needed the ability to go in and edit the categories, make sense out of them, understand them, and, and tailor them to the business purpose we had in mind. And that was really the birth of e-classifier, which we consider to be essentially a taxonomy editor, if you will, based on examples of the categories. So the, the underlying philosophy here on slide two is, yeah, I was just about to say on slide two now, um, is that taxonomy generation as it's done typically is too labor intensive um, and, and not very maintainable. Um, other approaches that have been used, uh, such as can taxonomies, to kind of force fit the data will work in some relatively narrow situations, but typically are not uh, generalizable. Um, the third thing to realize is that there's no, for any given set of data, there isn't a single right taxonomy that, that sort of captures everything. And there isn't any sort of general taxonomy for the universe that we can plug and play anywhere. So 
on any given collection of data, there's more than one way to break it up into categories. And so, um, really, it depends on what you're trying to do with the taxonomy that, that really is going to determine what the right categories are. And so, a single clustering approach that gives you one taxonomy can't possibly be right under those conditions. You're going to need some way to interact with the taxonomy and edit it to get to where you really want to be, which is categories that make sense for you for what you're trying to do with your data. So on to slide three. The basic approach that we use with the classifier is start with uh, a clustering. And we use uh, multiple methods because for given any given data set, different ways may work better than others. And you want to use a method that's going to get you started quickly that will create categories initially that are sort of on uh, same wavelength as you are in terms of trying to create categories that are meaningful. Um, the second principle is that we don't, uh, for classification purposes, once you've created your categories and you're trying to model them with a, a, an automatic classifier, we don't use any one classifier because for the same reason as before, depending on your domain and depending on the kinds of categories you're trying to create, no one classification approach is going to be adequate. So we, we actually have multiple algorithms built, built in and we allow the system to pick the best algorithm uh, for different parts of the taxonomy. Um, the third principle is that you may have your own ideas about what the taxonomy should be right off the bat, your own categories that you want to import into the taxonomy, and that, that's another thing we allow. You can start from your own starting point um, and then add the tools as they become needed for you to refine it. Um, the fourth principle is that you need the ability, if you're going to make intelligent choices, um, you're going to need to be able to uh, understand each category and what it contains at both uh, a semantic level as well as uh, statistical level, understanding uh, what are the variabilities of each category, what is the range of things it contains, so that you can make intelligent choices about how to edit those categories. And finally, once you have a taxonomy, then you're going to want to apply it to other uh, pieces of information, structured information, the, the, the features, uh, the facets like we talked about. On to the next slide. I guess this is, I've lost count here. Is this slide four or five? Slide four. Slide four. Four. So the basic approach we use is, um, again, we apply multiple algorithms. We're not trying for any kind of perfect result. We're really trying for consistently good results in these algorithms. So we've tailored some of the uh, basic fundamental algorithms in the field to do things which are going to give you good results most of the time but may not give you the mathematically perfect result every time. Um, obviously, you want to utilize domain expertise at all phases of the process, from the beginning to the end, wherever it's available to get us results that are going to be meaningful at the end, that are going to be helpful. And at any point, we provide you the necessary tools and metrics so that you can draw conclusions from what you're seeing very quickly and make decisions uh, upon, that, upon those conclusions. Next slide, five. So here's the, the basic process in a nutshell. Um, you're going to start with uh, the dictionary. These are the features that the tool uses to compare two documents to decide if they're similar. Mm -hmm. And it's basically statistical features, words and phrases, 
We don't use any NLP or natural language uh, understanding for the simple reason that when we got into this business, we were using help desk problem tickets as our main data source. And if you've ever looked at help desk problem tickets, they're not very grammatical, they're not very well written, and you can't really count on a lot in terms of uh, sentence structure. This gives us the flexibility to really apply our approach to many different kinds of data and have it work pretty well most of the time. After you've got a dictionary, you, you then prune it, and that's where the expertise comes in. If you want to get rid of irrelevant terms for your domain, for your purposes, you can tell the system to uh, remove some terms, to create synonyms for other terms, etc. Then you use clustering techniques to create categories automatically based on these features for the different documents. Next, you examine those categories, uh, modifying them based on your knowledge of the domain and what you're trying to do. And it may be that there's more than one way to skin a cat here. You may want to create multiple taxonomies, um, each one representing a different theme. Um, you might have a, a technical taxonomy about the different technologies, another one about the different applications of those technologies. You have another one about geography and other kinds of structured information. And you can basically combine those in different ways, different powerful ways, during search or during analysis. Next slide. So the, the following slides, and it really doesn't matter if I get through all of these, but I just wanted to quickly show you an overview of these tools and how they actually work in practice and they, and they look. Um, so after you've generated your initial taxonomy, you want to view the classes, and we usually do that first in tabular form, just to show you at a high level what are the major categories in your data and what are some statistics about the categories. And these statistics help you to understand at a high level how the categories relate to each other and which ones you may want to focus in on first uh, when you're, you're doing your understanding and editing phase. Next slide. Slide seven. Slide seven talks about um, different ways we use for naming the categories. We have our own kind of naming syntax to make sure we get a very short name, which is also very meaningful. And different metrics that we use to help you understand the categories quickly in terms of ranking them and deciding where to begin your, your editing process. Next slide. Dictionary tool lets you see all the features and sort them by frequency and alphabetically and by relevance to the categorization. You can use this to remove any terms that are confusing the clustering and, and recluster based on your edits. You can also edit things like the synonym list that's automatically generated to include any additional synonyms you want to uh, create. Next slide, nine. There's various dictionary files you can include in the generation to uh, make the uh, dictionary generation quicker. Uh, stop word list, synonym list, include word list. Stop phrases for when you have text that may confuse the algorithm because it's repeated over and over again in, in most of the documents. These can be automatically generated for the most part. Slide 10. Um, various tools are available for refining the classes, including subclassing, uh, based on clustering or other techniques, merging of classes, bleeding of classes, renaming. Um, everything that you do can be undone uh, via an undo stack, so you can try various approaches and, and save them out and uh, re redo with different techniques. Next slide, slide 11. 
Each individual category can be studied at a detailed level. And here's where you can see the individual documents. And we sort these documents in various ways. You can see like the most typical document in the category, followed by the next most typical, all the way down to the end of the list, which would be the outliers of the category. So this kind of viewing, this kind of sorting of examples really helps you to understand the category quickly without having to read through all of the components of that category. Next slide, slide 12. Keyword searching allows you to create categories based on your own uh, rules, your own list of keywords, if you wish. And as you're typing in keywords, it's actually going through the list of documents and pulling out additional words that are related to the words you're typing in. This can help you to uh, find additional examples you may not have thought of that are also uh, important for your query. Next slide, 13. Um, this is basically viewing uh, the results of your query in, in a way that lets you, again, sort and see statistics about them. Next slide, 14. Uh, this slide shows you an approach that lets you create categories based on pure keyword queries. So if you don't like what clustering gives you, or again, you have your own idea of what the classes should be, this, this uh, input option allows you to create classes yourself based on uh, words and phrases. And next slide, 15. Once you have multiple taxonomies generated, we have a way to compare them on top of each other to show you where the overlaps are between, in this case, we're showing a taxonomy on medical articles that shows symptoms, or, or I'm sorry, uh, side effects on one uh, axis and then uh, the actual drug on the other axis so you can see uh, what kinds of co-occurrences are happening um, for each of the categories and each of the taxonomies. Slide 16, uh, same kind of co-occurrence table. This time it's uh, categories versus the dictionary. So you can see for individual categories what are some of the significant words and phrases within them. You can do this with other structured variables such as dates, um, uh, geography, and so on. Slide 17, um, other features I really don't have time to get into, just to mention quickly, is uh, graphical visualization, subclassing from structured information to add that to the, the text mixture, creating a classifier. So once you create your categories, you want it will automatically create for you a, a classification engine that will take in new examples and, and accurately classify them based on what it's learned from what you're doing. Um, you can read in template uh, taxonomies that were generated from other data sets and basically apply them to your data and see how well they do. You can import individual categories from other saved taxonomies. And um, you can look at many different metrics across the, that class table I was showing you. The, the cohesion and distinctness are just a couple. There's really like a dozen of them you can look at. And finally, DIW is a, uh, a tool that we're doing now uh, for larger scale data in data warehouses. Slide 18 is uh, just a quick show you what the visualization looks like. allows you to actually visually see the categories and the documents they contain. To look for areas of bleed, uh, essentially areas where the system can't really tell well how to differentiate two clusters, this can give you a quick way to edit those gray areas and refine them better. That's about it. Okay, thank you, Scott. Uh, we have maybe time for one quick question. Otherwise, we can move it towards the Q&A session. One quick question. Uh, are these 
tools, uh, I mean, the, the screens you showed us, are they design time or runtime tools? These are, uh, in a sense, uh, tools for creating the taxonomy. So, it's so it would be design time, yeah. And uh, are these tools used uh, in-house? Are they used in consulting, or are they sort of available? And if they are available, are they open? Yes, it's not open source at this time, though. Um, it's been used in various in-house applications and also in some previous products and probably future products. But I don't at this point have a download that I can give you to go to go use them. Okay, um, so last but certainly not least is uh, um, I'm moving to my slides, uh, slide number eight. Uh, it's a really pleasure for me to introduce Peter, Peter Mika, uh, who is a PhD candidate at uh, uh, the School of Computer Science and Free University in Amsterdam. Uh, he visited with us here at Almaden uh, not too uh, uh, you know, recently. Um, uh, he is doing his PhD in social networks and taxonomy and really is uh, an expert in the area of semantic web and ontology. And I'll give you just examples of some of the work that he did. Uh, like, for instance, he won the Best Paper Award uh, in ISWC 2005 for Ontologies or Us, a Unified Model of Social Networks and Semantics. He also won first prize for the Semantic Web Challenge uh, in 2004 for the tool, uh, the system really, uh, called Flank. Uh, he's actually sharing the Semantic Web Challenge uh, for uh, this year. Uh, and he is the author also of various other tools, so like OpenAcademia.org, Elmo, Squat, On the Web, Ontolog, uh, Onto Knowledge, and so on. And just one last thing I want to mention about Peter, uh, just the amazing amount of work that he's done. And, you know, when I talk to him, he's almost done with his PhD, probably is uh, over soon, uh, is that I, I was reading, uh, uh, you know, Tim Bersner-Lee's uh, Revisited uh, Semantic Web Revisited, and this is published uh, in the Intelligent Systems of this month. And uh, one of the uh, citations for examples of tools is uh, Peter's uh, uh, Flank tool. So just to let you know, uh, this work is being noticed all over. So with that, uh, please, Peter, uh, uh, it's all your time. So thank you very much. Um, this is also the first time I'm calling with this forum. So I'm not so much aware of the ontology content or the previous discussions on ontologizing it. But I thought what could be useful is to give you two demos of the system that we've built, because that could give you an idea of what can be done with semantic technologies, which could be useful for uh, ontologizing the ontology content. So this lecture presentation, I'm on starting the presentation now. This lecture presentation, I guess, um, last week at the forum on using semantic technology for scientific metadata. But it has um, a nice overview of two of the systems that have been mentioned already, this Flink and Open Academia. I'm now skipping to slide number four. Apologies, there's going to be some slide hopping here. Um, Flink is a system for social network data collection, aggregation, storage, and visualization. It's a web application, so it's a website that you can visit. And what you'll see at this website is a specific instance of Flink that is targeted at showing the social network of the semantic web community. 
in this case, in particular, the people who have been contributing papers to the International Semantic Web Conference. And the system is built with Semantic Web technology, and you can try it. It's also open source. Um, everything I'm going to tell you today is open source. If we move on to slide number five, there is a very, very schematic overview of how the system is put together. Um, basically, semantic technology is used for information integration. And this is what we see happening here. We take a number of sources. In particular, um, I'm doing some kind of web mining to extract social networks from the web. Uh, we also reuse existing information in terms of profiles. Um, some of the members of this community already have um, personal profiles created and attached to their homepage. So we're collecting the data. We also monitor mailing lists. So the system is, is subscribed to a number of mailing lists, and it's, it's looking at the mailing lists on who is communicating with whom within the community. And lastly, it also consumes um, a publication database so that it knows who is writing papers with whom. And all the data goes into basically a giant triple store, and that's where the semantic web magic is happening, um, that we use reasoners to find out um, if, um, if there are corresponding references in these sources. So whether someone mentioned in an email is the same person who is mentioned in the full profile, or whether that person who is mentioned on the web is the same who is the author of a publication in a publication database. And then the outcome of, of all this um, is basically the website that you can see on the web. If you go to fling.samaniba.org, and we also do some social network analysis on the data that we get out. Now, going on to the next slide, this is just a screenshot um, of the website itself. Basically, every researcher has a profile page where, where we show the aggregated data and some network statistics. Um, these are always interesting for people to see so that they know where they stand in the community, sort of. Going on to the next slide, um, we also try to associate people with research interests. So there's some text mining there. Very, very simple, though. Um, and try to identify sub-communities within the community based on people's research interests. On the next slide, what you see is another kind of diagram where we try to uh, uncover the associations between research topics. Not so much on, on how these terms occur in the text, but how the communities themselves overlap. Um, going to the next slide is just a fun geographic visualization of the network of these people. Now, number 10 is, is already the more serious stuff when we export the data and we just um, uh, import it into network analysis packages. And this is where I'm doing together with social science, uh, the social science faculty at our university. Um, going on to slide 11, basically what we try to do is to see how certain network measures um, correspond with status and performance in the community. Um, to give you an example, uh, this table, it's not important that you understand it in detail, but it sort of shows how people rank on certain measures, and it also shows how that corresponds to certain relevant positions. For example, whether they've been uh, chairs of the NSWC conference series, or whether they've been active in the WCC, or have been serving on the editorial board of the important journals in this field. And in terms of performance, we try to see if their network standing somehow correlates um, with their performance as scientists as measured 
um, by numbers of publications, for example, or citations, or the impact of those publications. So this is basically the Flint system. Um, now going on to the second system, and you will very soon see the similarities, even though um, the purpose of the two systems is very different. Going on to slide number 12, and immediately skipping to slide number 13, Open Academia is a system that we've recently um, made public. It's been something we've written for ourselves, really. Um, it's a metadata repository for small research groups to handle um, publication metadata. It's a software you can download and install. Um, and it's a dis completely distributed system, so unlike some of the centralized sites, um, like sites here or Google Scholar that scientists use typically. It's also open source. Um, the system is meant to be as easy as possible for, for individual researchers to use and to, uh, to submit data. Um, basically, what we ask people is only to have some kind of structured format um, in which they maintain their publication metadata. Now, most people in sciences typically do that already um, because they generate references in their publications using some kind of reference management system. And as it's linked, we also consume folk data. So if people have personal information or if a group has um, group metadata, we can, we can incorporate that. Now, the system does a lot of things for the researcher in exchange. Um, it allows uh, people to, uh, uh, to insert their publication list into their home pages uh, dynamically. Um, and also, we generate and give each researcher an RSS feed with his publication list. And we do similar things for research groups. Um, we aim to help the reporting and dissemination of publications. And the system is public. Uh, there is a public instance of the system, so it's better to say that way, which is at openacademia.org. Skipping on to slide number 14, what you say, what you see is that there are basically just uh, simple forms for the people to fill in, and that's all they need to do. Um, number 15 shows the query interface to the system. It's a kind of AJAX interface. Um, the interface itself queries the repository, uh, gets the data, which is an RSS feed, and applies various uh, style sheets to transform it into, into different uh, representations. Going on to the next slide, number 16, you see the result. For example, if we apply uh, style sheets, uh, we can generate uh, structured data from the RSS feed again, uh, in this case a big tag format. Number 17 shows that we can do tech clouds, which are very important. Now, the tech techs come into play is that um, individual people have the possibility to tag publications uh, simply by um, adding keywords in their own um, tech file or publication collection. And then uh, the system collects these keywords. And when you, when you do a query, uh, it allows you to, uh, to build a tech cloud from it which is to say that you will see the keywords that are most commonly occurring uh, on the publications that result from that particular query. Um, going on to the next slide, we also have some network visualizations um, to visualize co-authorship networks. Again, this works on the queries, uh, where you can query for uh, networks of a particular group, for example. 
Slide number 19 shows um, a previously mentioned feature, uh, namely that just by adding a simple line of JavaScript in your in your HTML uh, homepage, uh, you get two things. You get an RSS feed, um, which lets people to subscribe to your publications. So basically, they get notified whenever you put something new online. Also, if you use Firefox, Firefox lets you save such an RSS feed as a live bookmark, which is to say you get uh, a bookmark folder uh, which will contain uh, the items in your RSS feed, in this case publications. And then you click on these items, uh, you, 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 uh, you go to the publication itself. And the fun thing in this is that whenever you open uh, such a folder, it refreshes automatically. So if you save my publications on your toolbar, um, and, the, and the, a month later you click on it again and you open it, um, it will contain all my publications, also the new ones that I've written in the meantime. Um, going on to number 20, you see another homepage of colleague of mine. Um, he uses the system also for generating the HTML um, within uh, his uh, homepage. Um, basically, this is just another uh, line of JavaScript again. Uh, and we generate this JavaScript for code for you. This is also dynamic. So whenever he, uh, he adds a new publication uh, to the system, um, this thing is refreshed. Going on to the next slide, number 21, you see that the architecture is very similar to, to Flink. Um, it's a bit more advanced. Um, the commonality is that there's an RDF uh, repository in the middle, uh, which takes all the metadata. Um, this metadata is in, in, uh, in the case of Open Academia, publication metadata, personal profiles, uh, group definitions, flow of data. And basically, under any other data, um, which could be uh, data from another open academia server. Uh, so the system is peer-to-peer -peer in that sense. Um, what is different from, from Flink is that this system has an RDF crawler built in. Um, how it works is that every night this crawler goes out uh, and it collects the data, and it throws away the old data. So the system is refreshed every night automatically. And uh, the fun thing in, in this is that um, if someone submits some data from the system to the system, for example, a FOF profile, and then they link to some other data from their uh, FOF profile, it will collect that. Um, so it has, it has a certain network effect. Um, and that's with Flink. It allows people a way to, um, to submit data uh, to the system without uh, without asking me or anyone who is maintaining that particular uh, server. Uh, maybe it wasn't obvious from the Flink diagram, but that works there as well. So if you want to add some kind of metadata to the system, uh, for example, your email changed or your homepage has changed, um, all you need to do is to create a full profile and, and put, the, put in there the correct information. Um, and that will be added next time that the system is refreshed. The difference is that it's like the refresh is manual, and with OpenAcademia, it's, it's uh, automated. And then, uh, again, there is, a, there is a service that queries the RDF repository and generates these RSS feeds. Um, and there's another component, which is not shown here, and that's simply uh, this AJXC uh, interface, which consumes these RSS feeds and displays them.
So basically, these are the two systems I, I wanted to tell you about um, um, very briefly. Um, I don't know how much time do we have. Um, you could you, you probably have a couple minutes to wrap it up. Um, okay, so let's go to the next slide, number uh, 22, skipping on to number 23. Um, we'll skip this also because this is a very obvious slide with the benefits of applying semantic technologies, and I think in this context it is not necessary to reiterate. Um, number 24 uh, mentions some of the drawbacks that we encounter in this work. Um, which is, again, I will not spend time on. Now, number 25, um, and skipping on to 26, um, if some of you is interested in folksonomies and tagging, uh, the article that Max mentioned might be interesting for you, um, but it's very much um, a research article, so I would not want to spend much time on it. The main message of it, though, is that um, as I see it, um, folksonomies are not as far from ontologies as most people believe. Um, basically, what happens in folksonomies is that a large number of individual tagging actions um, result in some kind of stability, in some kind of emergence of semantics. Um, now, actually, most people say that folksonomies are great because they are very dynamic, uh, so that they change every day as people add new concepts, as people add new content and as people assign concepts to content. Um, but actually, uh, my proposition is uh, something I would certainly like to investigate in the future in more detail, is that much of the folks, much of the folks mommies out there, uh, for the most part, are quite stable. Um, so over the long run, um, the meaning of the concepts um, stabilizes. Um, and if you consider uh, the stable part of ontology, the stable part of folksonomies, um, they are in fact not so far from a very lightweight ontology, um, because what people mostly attribute as a difference between the two is, is this um, dynamism or stability, uh, meaning that ontologies are controlled vocabularies, so their evolution is uh, is much more iterative, while folksonomies are uh, sort of changing uh, continuously. Moving on to uh, the next slide. Um, there is some minimal sort of tagging in Flink um, with, uh, in terms of uh, the interest that you've seen. Uh, people's interests uh, are tags, uh, sort of. Um, in Open Academia, we allow people to tag publications um, by attaching uh, keywords uh, in the BibTeX file itself. Um, also, there are many, many systems in the science um, publishing bibliographic domain um, that do um, tagging on publications. You might have heard of Comatia or a site you like, or Bibsonomy, which is actually, I think, the only one that is open source from three. The other two are commercial systems. Now, tag interchange is quite problematic in general. Um, as you know, um, the problem with much of these uh, folksonomies and tagging systems out there is that they are very much islands of semantics on their own. Um, so each of the systems has a set of tags and a set of objects and a set of users, um, but it's still very unclear how would this all be connected into a single web. 
Um, whether, for example, the same tag on Flickr would have a similar meaning as the same tag on malicious. Or even whether uh, the same tag within one system means the same thing if it's applied by different users. Um, or whether, uh, whether that changes over time even. Now, my intuition is that in this particular uh, scientific domain that I'm talking about here, um, where we are tagging publications, presentations, learning science data, for example, um, actually there is a better chance for interchange between these systems. Um, partly because users have the same objects in mind when tagging, and partly because there's a limited community, and we are tagging with quite specific terms. Um, what I discovered in my investigation of foxonomies is that um, that a part, a part of the terms, a smaller part of the terms, I should say, are quite ambiguous, and but you can spot them very easily um, because they uh, sort of end up in a situation where they are applied um, in a certain random pattern that uh, uh, that can be um, noticed very easily. Um, moving on to the next slide, um, I'm not going to talk about semantic wikis because someone else have already talked about them, um, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, Open Academia does uh, have a sort of interface to the blogging world. Um, what we do is that we search uh, for comments about publications in blogs using the technology search engine you might be familiar with. Okay. Okay. Let's uh, keep it at that. Okay, great. Uh, I, I appreciate this uh, overview, Peter. Um, so we're we're pretty much uh, you know done with the prepared kind of talk and presentation session, and I think uh, all the speakers pretty much covered this you know very uh, uh, broad uh, space. So now we're going to open it up for questions. Um, you know, I think we have uh, Peter. How how much more time do we have, Peter Yim? Uh, we have another 20 minutes or so. Another 20 minutes. Okay, so I have some prepared questions, but what I want to do is to let uh, either the panelists themselves ask questions or the audience. So let's go for the audience first. Uh, any specific questions? I had one. This is Pat Heining. I had one question for uh, Connor. Uh, one of the things I think that's interesting is you talked about there's no concept typology in a regular uh, wiki. Um, and I think somewhere I heard you also say it's a very interesting fact that the relationship typology is sort of on the fly also. You can, not only is it flat in terms of concepts, but you can pick almost any relationship based on your interest and you just link it up so it becomes kind of hypertext linking. Is that, is that true? That's another sort of emerged property of, of, a, of a flat wiki, sort of semantics without any semantics. Connor? Oh, is Connor still there? Okay, I think he, he, he may have had to talk. Oh, anyway, that, I th he just made that emphasis once before, and I think it's an important one, too, because um, literally, for those of us who use regular wikis, we can see that with a wiki word, we can go and hook it to almost anything without really specifying why, um, and it almost becomes obvious because you go down and that's why it is. But, but there really is no typology that, on the relationships that would let you do 
um, more informed searching. So that's that's one benefit I think of, of introducing semantics and any kind of if we got into I guess one of the benefits for us here in terms of of this endeavor is if we got into some kind of folksonomy idea as, as a design, we would have to look at those sorts of things. Right, and I, I was going to point this out, like uh, a lot of what Peter Mika mentioned here and some of his intuition about, you know, how if people pack things, you reach some kind of a evolvable ontology uh, would, would apply. So let's see if there are any other questions for the for uh, the remaining uh, panelists. Uh, I know Bob had to step out. Uh, he had mentioned that in Connor also. He's actually talking to bullying, so uh, he apologizes for that. So we have Peter Nika. I have a question uh, for Peter Nika. Okay. Uh, it's Peter Yim here. Uh, I, I really appreciated your the two systems you presented and would like to discuss this a little more, actually. Are you still in Northern California, or, or are you back in Europe? I'm in Amsterdam. Oh, yeah, in Amsterdam. Okay, I mean, that's yeah. because my next question actually is for you and for everybody else, uh, or, or the other speakers who are in Northern California, since we are going to have an ontologue face-to-face uh, in the week of July 23rd. Uh, I w- was hoping that any or all of you could join us at that workshop, which uh, Bob Smith, uh, Kurt Conrad, and Rex Brooks are putting together, and we could maybe further investigate. Uh, more specific question about your two set of tools. Uh, is the choice of corpus uh, possible, or uh, is it just open to any or everything on the web uh, for which the, the user chooses to attack? What's the question to me in particular? Yeah, uh, it, 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 can one choose a corpus? I mean, choose, let's say, specific set of documents. For example, I mean, in our case, let's say the ontologue content. Can we say, let's all just focus on the set of uh, the corpus that, is, that includes everything within ontologue and not look at, at anything outside, for example? Um, for what purpose? The, on the use of your tools. I'm not familiar with your tools. For I think he's asking if you have an API to feed in data to your tools so that you can take advantage. And in some ways, if your tool had an API, because I think it's really cool, too. I, I'd have the same kind of idea we could use. Do you see what he's getting at, Peter? Um, yeah, maybe I should know more about what kind of data you have in the first place. Um, is 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 it only a set of wiki pages? No, I mean it's wiki pages, web pages, documents. I mean we we have a file repository, a, a, a archived email forum, which I guess you can consider as just HTML pages and uh, and wiki and and wiki content. Okay, so the way you provide data to these tools is basically you have to make the step of um, turning them into into RDF metadata. So you have to uh, you have to generate some kind of RDF metadata so we will about the people or about the pages before I mean before you so your system starts with sort of, uh, from the, the the triple store. So we have to apply the triple store to to your to your system. No, not necessarily. I mean, Flink, we actually applied it to uh, this year's ESWC conference. 
Um, and I mean, the web mining part works without you providing any data. So we try to uh, we try to uh, extract from the web who is related to whom uh, by simple concurrence analysis, basically. Um, if you have full data, that is useful. If you have emails, you you uh, you don't have to convert that to anything because you can just uh, hook up to any mailbox and read its contents if you if you have the name and the the username and the password. Um, and the other kind of data it, it consumes is publications, um, which you may or may not have. Okay, I definitely would like to explore this some more. Maybe we can do it offline or maybe online and then having a discourse okay. over over our uh, ontolog forum. I mean, if, if you are interested to maybe continue. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's really wonderful. Yeah. And actually, a follow-up on this is, do you, Peter, Mika, do you have, do you know of people that, have, since your tool is open source, that have taken it and applied it for their particular corpus or different data set? Um, I know a lot of people who took the data. Um, it is a very interesting data set. Um, we applied it ourselves, as I mentioned, um, to uh, for sort of conference support. So that was ELWC this year, and we're planning to do that for SWC as well. Okay. Because like, for instance, no, go ahead. people use parts of the software. So some people use the web mining part. Um, some people use the RDF crawler. Um, which is also open source, um, but in a different library. Uh, so different people use different parts. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Let's see if there are any other questions for Peter or Scott or you know anybody else. Uh, just mm -hmm. open discussion. Okay. So I'll, I have a, a specific question. Uh, a question for uh, Scott, uh, and that um, if. In some sense, uh, Scott is an expert. You know, he presented a lot in the text mining, so essentially using um, you know mathematical statistical analysis to automatically generate the categorization and taxonomy. And what I'm wondering is, where does this uh, break down, or is it good enough? Because in some ways, uh, Peter Mika's approach is also using that, but more you know, taking advantage of people's contribution uh, in some ways, especially towards the latter part of his talk. Uh, and maybe semantically he is similar. Now, you know, it probably doesn't scale uh, maybe, but, you know, Scott, can you give us an intuition in, on why, um, you know, automa automa automatic, um, you know, text mining works and it works well? Because I know that a lot of the tools Scott mentioned are widely used and we've been very successful with them. So. Uh, do you have an intuition on that, Scott? Yeah, so I, when you say the word automated, um, there's probably a little bit of uh, caveat there because we don't use a totally automated approach. Okay. We, we basically generate an initial classification, and then there's some expectation that, uh, as you know, some editing goes on behind the scenes to get it to a point where you want to use it on the back end with a, with a number of large population of users. So, you know, that uh, that paradigm is one which uh, is particularly valuable when you don't have great knowledge of all the data that's in the uh, repository you're classifying. So, it, like with this case of Help Desk, you know, 
certain individuals may know a lot about individual parts of the help desk and what they're classifying, but no one person really has a broad enough knowledge to say, okay, I know all the different categories and where I'd like to put all the different data. And not only that, I have examples of every single category that, that well describe it. So the, the way that our approach really helps you is, is taking a big picture view and saying, okay, here's the space that everything you need to categorize and where it seems to naturally fall into. But then you have to take the next step of, okay, what out of that clustering really makes sense to capture as a concept and how I want to model that concept, what examples really are good exemplars of that concept, and, and will I be able to carry that forward over time automatically? Do I have to constantly keep editing it as I go? Right. Yeah, this is a good point. So maybe I freeze, um, you know, I, let me try to be a little be more specific and put a different twist. So like you were saying, you, you use the human, the tool gives you an initial categorization, you go through a set of editing steps to refine it. What I was trying to get at is, this is really cool, but another approach could also be that as a human, I can have an initial idea of what the categorization would be. And I could also have an, an idea of what documents where they fit. And if enough of me or enough of people using the tool contribute, then you get this more, you know, social, uh, wisdom of the crowd approach, which is closer to what Peter Michael was talking about. And would that feed in? And what I'm trying to see is, is there a reconciliation where you can use that and essentially make the, 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 the task of automatic generation easier or faster or better? Yeah, no, definitely. This, this, the whole approach we use is really to try to take whatever human knowledge is available and just try to uh, augment that with what we can glean, what the machine can glean from the text itself, the basic words and phrases it contains. And what you'll often learn from that is that one idea, one help desk operator's idea of a printer category is very different from another help desk operator's idea of that category. And you'll see this diffuseness, this way that the cluster will kind of split into separate categories based on who the human operator was that classified it. So I think applying these kinds of automated tools on top of whatever the general population comes up with will help you to identify conflicts and, and resolve them very quickly. This is Roy Roebuck. Uh, one of the things I'm hearing, and I've been hearing this for quite a while now because I've been looking at it from this perspective, is uh, you can think about the, the various vocabularies that are used by the different participants in a, in a uh, domain uh, as the, the root of the, or basically the foundation of any ontology that you want to build, and you can assign top-down some sort of higher-level higher assignment of taxonomies, but essentially the taxonomies and resultant ontologies are going to be really unique to almost every individual. Uh, and what you end up with, and this is what I've been advising some of my clients on, you end up with communities of interest uh, that are formed based on their shared vocabulary, and that's basically the only reason they're forming as a community. They have basically common words. They may have different purposes, but they have common words. And so you end up getting the means to identify processes within that community as well as uh, as well as uh, the data and the uh, vocabulary. So what you end up with is the, the ontology becomes sort of a superset of a process model and a data model and a data dictionary all rolled together. Okay, that's a good point. Um, can, can I make a comment? To Scott? Yeah, sure. Peter. Scott, uh, looking at your slides, of course, I mean, I'm 
uh, seeing this for the first time, uh, reminds me that uh, it, it, the approach is startlingly similar to what uh, Denise Benson and Bob Smith are using in uh, what they call the Texosaurus pro- uh, project uh, on trying to uh, uh, ontologize the ontolog uh, content. In, in one of the questions, actually from an earlier discussion from the audience, is uh, what do you do in the maintenance mode? Since we are just starting, and you've probably been doing this quite a while, uh, the, the approach towards building out the first taxonomy and, and sort of mining existing content is it's obvious. But uh, what kind of uh, pitfalls or, or insights do you glean from sort of having run and maintained uh, your systems for a long time? I mean, what can you share with us in the maintenance mode? Like yeah, so we, we've actually developed some, some tools on top of the initial taxonomy generation to observe the categories over time. So the system will flag unusual occurrences within a category, for instance, certain words or phrases suddenly occurring with much higher frequency in a category recently than they had in the past. And so this, this flag then gets sent to the taxonomy editor to say, you know, you might want to look at this, maybe this category needs to be split up or re- revised to take this new concept into account. So you actually do have a single, let's say, taxonomy editor role that is assigned single per- to a single person, let's say? Yeah, generally there's there's one or, or a small team of people who, who work to uh, edit the taxonomy over time and, and make sure it stays current. I have a question to Scott, which is maybe pertinent to this discussion. Um, have you tried to apply this taxonomy generation method to wikis? No, that's one source of data we haven't we haven't tried yet. We have done taxonomy generation on just web pages generally and blogs in particular, and it seems to work okay. The thing that we always have trouble, or not trouble, but necessarily a, a challenge, is where do you delineate the documents? And typically, what we found to be most successful is actually use a, a, what we call a snippet analysis, where you take a particular uh, term that's of interest to you and build uh, documents around that term, and then you won't have to worry about where the boundaries are necessarily between uh, individual blog posts or, or individual articles. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, to Peter Mika, uh, actually, Denise and Bob Smith's uh, Texosaurus project is doing exactly that. I mean, taking the ontolog content w- of which the wiki is a piece and then trying to sort of uh, take an inventory, uh, uh, distill a taxonomy, and put the uh, domain expert in place to uh, clean it up. I mean, just almost like, I mean, what Scott was describing. Yeah. Okay. Keep watching us. <laughs> you watch it, Bob. Bob, are you still there? Interesting. I don't know if Bob is still there, but I heard it. I'll have to talk uh, to him. Yeah, Pat uh, Heineck is part of that team too. Yeah. And I was thinking there's there's a, a, a tremendous amount of information out of this this session that I think parallels a lot of the themes that that we will encounter or that become um, 
um, more applicable. You know, the the targeted community of like academic researchers is perhaps tighter, and, and maybe as Roy said, the vocabularies or other things might be tighter. One of the challenges, of course, that we have is who is the audience that wants to come and and maybe apply <laughs> their domain specific understanding of this, or maybe they're trying to bootstrap themselves up. So we may not get some of the economies of a of a tighter domain, but nonetheless, I think. That's part of our use case problem. Who, who do we want to purvey to in this? But right. this, is a, this is a fruitful discussion, Peter, in terms of having it recorded because we can probably crisscross it in various ways and pull out things that I think eventually will apply to this, this uh, situation. And hopefully on our iPods. Oh, oh hi, Bob. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the presentations today are just phenomenal. And thank you very much, Max. Yeah, oh, you have about three minutes, so you, if you want to start closing, uh, this is the right time. Right. Um, so I think, Peter, um, you, I second that, uh, but I take absolutely no credit for um, this, these presentations. This is really uh, the, the group of people that accepted my invitation. I'm really uh, honored and, and thankful because a lot of this was put uh, very last minute. But uh, so, Peter, Mika, thank you so much again for uh, presenting, and, and hopefully we can uh, collaborate uh, closer uh, uh, and also as part of this community. And Scott, who, uh, you know, I collaborate every day with, so uh, thank you so much for presenting, and, and Boz and, and Connor, who are not here. So with that, uh, um, unless uh, you have one more comment that you want to make, anybody, um, I want to thank uh, uh, the panelists and also the, um, the audience uh, for the excellent questions. So, Peter, um, that's it for me. Thank you. Thank you very much, Max. Uh, two, two more uh, advertisements. One is immediately next week. I mean, that's July 13th. We have Peter, uh, we have Pat Cassidy, uh, a formal ontologist, coming in to speak uh, on sort of the formal ontology approach, he will start from controlled vocabularies to formal ontologies and, and sort of take that position. And of course, I'm sure Bob Smith, since he's here, uh, would like to uh, tell everyone a little bit more about the upcoming uh, ontologue face-to-face that he and his colleagues are organizing. Bob? We're putting the final touches on the uh, schedule and the agenda, and we'll be uh, publishing to the analog form probably this weekend all the right. uh, the good things that uh, you'll find interesting. And we will have a uh, opportunity to uh, connect and listen if all goes well. We're going to have... A very exciting uh, uh, panel. Uh, we've learned a lot from uh, Max's panel with good questions. Uh, we're stimulated, and we will have not only uh, a full day broken down into uh, some appropriate panels, but lots of hands-on exercises that uh, I'm sure will be um, part of the evolving ontologizing process. Look forward to it and your participation. Yeah, I understand within the week we are also going to have a, a, a workshop at, 
SRI's artificial intelligence center too, right? That's that's correct. Yeah. So the workshop at Stanford, along with the protege folks, and the workshop at uh, SRI. So look forward to all of you uh, to uh, to participate. Uh, if not in person, then join us remotely. Thanks. And thanks again, Max, for your okay, session. Good for the Okay, bye-bye. 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 Thanks.